Hey everyone, Jason Vest of the After Red Podcast, and you are about to hear the interview of a lifetime. It really doesn't get any bigger than Ted Dinnersmith. He's a best-selling author, producer, speaker, and education transformation advocate. He's basically the Michael Jordan of getting people to think differently about what school could be, which is also the title of his newest book. Ted was such a generous, laid-back guy, and I can't thank him enough for doing this interview. I don't usually get this worked up over guests on the show, but Ted is one of a kind. Without further ado, here's Season 2, Episode 2 with Ted Dinnersmith. Let's do it. All right, everyone, um, you are in for a treat of the year, I have to say. Um, with me today on the After Ed podcast, I have Ted Dinnersmith. Ted, thank you so much for being on the show. No, great to be here. So, um, Ted, you're the first person I'm actually not going to introduce, and I don't want you to introduce yourself. Uh, if people don't know you, they need to Google you immediately, and so we're not going to waste any time with that. Uh, what though? The beauty of my last name is you're not going to get distracted by too many other entries. Right, right. Nobody probably paying for that ad space to beat you. <laughs> not much of a chance of that. So look, Ted, I just really want to jump right into it. I'm curious what your take is. What is the disconnect between our personal passions, you know, mine, yours, for education and kids coming out just great, better people from, from school, and what is stated about education in polls? Is this just a sign of our country's hopelessness rather than our not caring, or is there something else going on entirely? I think there might be something else going on. I, I start my book with a, but not right at the very beginning, but close to it, with this incredible discussion I had with an educator, and he come up, came up to me and said, February 6, 1992. And that's all he said. And I would, I'm like thinking, oh my God, what's this going? You know, like this seems strange. And then I said, I'm sorry. And he said, February 6, 1992. And I said, what? I, I don't know what that means. And it was the first day the New York Times ran a story about the scores of US kids versus other countries. And our scores weren't very good. And if you really look beneath the surface, there are all sorts of differences. You know, other countries tested some kids. We were testing all kids. You know, there are a million things behind those numbers that mean we shouldn't read too much into them. But in our society, in our hyper-competitive culture, we do read too much into them. And so that set up this panic about our kids falling behind, our kids not being as good. We need to catch up, which then led to more testing and more worksheets and more drilling and which brought us to today where we're the most heavily tested you know, set of kids in the world, but arguably learning the least and, and certainly going to school with the least joy. And, and then you look at and visited a place like Finland where, where the tagline ought to be, you know, study less, learn more, you know, where kids you know, are joyful, where they spend five or six hours a day in school, K through 12, where homework is quite modest, but they're learning how to think and they really enjoy school, and they respect hands-on as well as academic. Um, so I think that, that there's a lot beneath the surface here, and I think there is this big disconnect, because I think, on the one hand, legislators, a lot of the journal, the media that writes about education, it's just very easy to 
cite a test score or a percentage increase or decrease in test scores to be your hook for a story about education or a measure about how we're doing. When education is like people, it's nuanced, it's subtle, it's, it ultimately comes down to creative, to distinctive, to, to the very things that make us human. Yeah, so look, you're a Virginia guy, and uh, a lot of times I hear people say that, you know, we can't do that here, and, you know, emphasis on that. So I'm curious, like, just from your experience, I mean, can, can we just debunk some of the things that, as far as what's possible from an innovation standpoint here in the Commonwealth? You know, not only can Virginia do it, if Virginia's doing it. You know, if, if you and I, one of the points of my book, because I pick great examples from every state in the country, just to make the point, you can find incredible things going on all over the place. So if we went around Virginia, we would find some amazing, I mean, classrooms that are just blow you away classrooms, schools that are incredible. We'd find lots and lots to get really excited about. The real question is, what do we do to take that from a learning experience that's affecting and reaching two or three or 4% of the kids in Virginia to reaching most, to reaching all of the kids in Virginia. And, and you know, I call those great experiences, I say they're both everywhere and nowhere. Mm. You can find them. You and I show up at a random school and look hard enough, we'll find oftentimes that lone, you know, even somewhat criticized teacher who just has kids, you know, running through the school day to do what they, they you know, they love doing. Yeah. And, or that alternative school in a community where people, ah, oh, that's a good school for those kids, but certainly not for my kids. You know, and, and I think we, we need to shift that balance. And I think that's actually happening. I feel like there's, there's more and more enthusiasm for rethinking, for reimagining what education could be. And I think the people that have been at it for 20, 30 years on no excuses, no child left behind, more testing, more accountability. Honestly, I think they're tired. You know, they've, they've had the wrong goals in mind. They've had the wrong approaches that they've rolled out. They have nothing to show for 25 years of effort. I sense they're just kind of giving up. Yeah, that's great insight. I, um, I would not disagree with you there. And, you know, the argument is, though, I mean, just to play devil's advocate, okay, so the test isn't going away. So how do we know that this whole innovation thing isn't just another swing of the pendulum? Why am I going to spend my time and effort to create a new performance-based task or a new uh, industry-recognized credential that my kids can get while I know it's better for them when I'm still only being judged by this test? Yeah. You know, I... I when I hear the metaphor, you know, and, and, you know, it's a metaphor, you cite it because you know that's what a lot of people view this as, is a pendulum swinging back and forth, and maybe I should just wait out this cycle because it'll eventually get back to where I am right now. You know, it's just not the case, though, right? I mean, you know, one of the points I make is, when have we ever learned anything other than learning by doing? When have we ever gotten excited about what we do other than when we have a voice in it and believe it's important? When... when when do any of us think we're ever put on this planet other than to create, invent, and, and bring forward things that reflect our efforts and our skills and an ability to make our world better? I mean, I think that the essence of what drives us as people, the essence of what's important in life, that's not a pendulum swinging back and forth. That, that has a through history gone from, from doing really bold things to make your world better to 
filling out bubble tests based on memorizing content and drilling on procedures to then going back to, to in your own way, making your mark on your community. It's always around making a difference, making a positive contribution. But when we push that out of schools, as we have so, you know, so intensely in the last 25 years, we are really just doing an enormous disservice to kids. And so, so, you know, and then you say, well, how do we know? I mean, that's the other obvious question. I mean, like, it's great to talk about this creativity bullshit, but how do we know our kids are really learning? Exactly. I would say two things. First, show me evidence today that they're really learning. I mean, all these people, these standardized curriculum people, the people that have just pushed this stuff onto our teachers and onto our students for the last 25 years, the brilliant people in Virginia behind the SOLs, who, by the way, ought to be taking those tests and telling us their own scores. <laughs> but the people that think this is a good idea in school, you know, why don't we do something simple? Like after the kids have drilled for this thing, test them three months later and see what they really retain. Mm. You know, whenever anybody does that, they find, oh my gosh, within three months, whether the student had great scores or bad scores, within three months, it's all gone. It's like writing an essay on a sandy beach with the wind blowing. And, and so <laughs> the downside of shifting is negligible, right? I mean, kids aren't learning. You, you talk to any employer, I think it's like 94% say, are skeptical that colleges have really prepared kids for the workforce. Talk to students and student engagement and how it plummets from early grades to late grades. Talk to teachers. If we bothered to think it was important to test teacher morale, which we ought to be doing regularly, you know, teachers are just feel beat on by, by this stuff. And it's all because a bunch of, I think, mindless bureaucrats feel like it's a big deal to get tough. And, and I'm going to flex my muscle and I'm going to hold these damn teachers and students accountable. And, and yet, ask them, you know, like, Take an honest look at the questions on these SOLs and ask yourself, if I get good at this stuff, it, does this give me any advantage later in life? And it doesn't. And so I get really excited as I travel at some of the places I write about, places that are doing great things in Virginia. But at the state level, I write about and I get excited about what they did from 2009 to 2016 in New Hampshire, where they made a statewide transition to competency-based and performance-based assessments. Have kids produce real work, have teachers evaluated, subjected to thoughtful cross-checks, outside school boards can come in and audit, state bureaucrats and legislators that don't think they're learning can go actually look at samples of student work and the progress. I and mean, we can evaluate real work. You know, and, and maybe it takes a little more effort, maybe there are innovative ways to make it really you know, time-effective, but why do we dwell on these mindless things that produce numbers that are only, at best, loosely correlated predictors that a kid later will be able to do anything of consequence instead of asking kids to do something of consequence. You know, why do we take this indirect in-run when, for instance, the best, the best evidence the College Board can give us for the importance of the SAT is it explains about 20% of the variance of first year college GPA. And the beauty of education for, for those defending the bureaucracy is we discourage anybody from taking statistics because if you take statistics and understand it, you understand that 20% of the variance is pitifully little. Mm -hmm. So, so this, this pinnacle of educational learning, the SAT or the ACT, actually predicts nothing. 
it reflects family affluence. That's what it tells us. It tells us how rich the kids are. Mm-hmm. How, you know, did, were they in a home environment where somebody read at them from age four on? Did they get an iPad when they were six and, and told they have to play an hour of motion math in order to spend two hours of video games? That's what those tests capture. They don't test anything about a kid's really important skill sets or mindsets or character traits. And I just say, why, why are we chasing down that rat hole? It's a great question and uh, I think a great segue. So I've done a lot of um, reading and research on modern organizations and those that are truly thriving. And uh, a lot of the decision making, it, it seems, in these companies is decentralized. So I, I think of a few different things and maybe you can draw a connection with, with all of these. But I, I think about Toyota and what they've done. I think about Clayton Christensen's work and I think lean startup principles from Eric Reese and design thinking at IDEO. And then yet in education, Ted, if I have this great idea, I can't implement it without approval from 10 different people. I I can't be flexible or agile enough to really make that work. So why is it or or why is that? And you know, what are the intended and unintended consequences of that? Well, I, it, back to my book, what school could be. I've got this great, <laughs> modestly, you know, got this great section about why bureaucrats do what they do, and, and you think about the people that rise to the top of these organizations. You know, the U.S. Department of Education, in many cases. Although Virginia is really fortunate to have some great leaders in the education area. Agreed. You know, James Lane, yep. Atif Carney, they're the real deal. There's some. There's a lot to be excited about and positive about in the state of Virginia, but. But back, you know, Federal Department of Education, you know, these the college board, the educational testing services. You can look at who gets up at the top of those places. They are college-ready, college-educated. They are people that just, when they wake up in the morning, you pinch them and say, what's the most important thing for a high school kid to get excited about? They answer Chaucer or valence electrons. You know, it's like, it's like that's the world they live in. And they, they survive and thrive in bureaucracies. And bureaucracies run by, on the basis of restrictive policies that basically tell people what they can't do. Layers of approval. They want to do everything they can to make sure mistakes don't happen. And that's why, and I can speak to this firsthand, having spent 30 years in the world of, of technology innovation, that's why the big organizations don't innovate. That's why the people who are innovators flee to something smaller. And so you look at education, and, and we have run and organized education in our schools for the last 30 years with an approach straight out of central planning from the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And, and how did that work, right? How did that work? You know, it collapsed. And, and so when you think about what keeps people excited, when I see the drive and the dedication of teachers, when I see students who are just so engaged, what's going on there? Well, first, they have a real voice in what they're doing. They're not doing what somebody else told them they had to do. You know, when education is at its best, the participants, the students and teachers, are doing what they believe is really important to do. You know, now they're, you know, they're, it's fair to have some guidelines on this. It's not like open field running and, you know, if you want to have your kids run outside and play freeze tag for eight hours a day, that's fine. <laughs> or you know, but but when you let kids, and this is this is really a theme that that runs through and through my book, and and the book, by the way, is based on going to all fifty states in a school year, two hundred school visits, a thousand meetings or community forums, 
So this wasn't just here and there. This was this was an emergent in education in America, where you see the really remarkable learning experiences. There is a degree of trust and respect extended to those teachers, the teachers that really have their kids on fire, the kids that are really learning and retaining. When I ask them, how'd you come up with this idea? They didn't say, well, it was in the policy manual, or they didn't say the superintendent said I had to do this, or, you know, regulation 22.3.5 of the federal whatever it says I had to do it. It's something they came up with. They said, I just had a sense that my kids would get super excited about this. And, and this is so important, and somebody in my school had my back. Generally, the principal. The teacher said, I knew I could do this because my principal said, go for it. And my principal understood that it may not work perfectly first time, but we'll make it even better and even better and even better. And you start to say, whoa, think about that. Because not only do you get, at the end, a really great learning experience, but think of all the learning along the way. It's the same with kids, right? A kid that is told to read something about history and take a multiple choice test on basically fact-based tests about what they read. I mean, how many kids can't wait to do that? I'd say no kid wants to do that. How many kids really retain what they've memorized and then spit back on a multiple choice exam? I don't think any kids are remembering that. The, the main thing that kids learn in that experience, taking history, when I ask them, what'd you learn in this class? They say, I learned I never want to take history again. You know, history, which is infinitely fascinating, and kids are in learning experiences where they say, the biggest takeaway for me from this class was I never want to take it again. And by the way, swap out history with science, with math, with English, with topic after topic. But then you switch gears and you say, um, I talk about this grade eighth grade class in Fargo, North Dakota, just to make it specific, where they decided instead of making kids learn history facts, let's teach kids to think like historians. So the teachers worked with students and said, what's an aspect of history in your community you're curious about? The kids said, there's some really cool buildings in downtown Fargo. We'd love to capture the history of them. One thing led to another. They went from writing essays to doing photo uh, compositions to actually doing many documentaries. They researched it. They went to libraries. They interviewed people that were the elder you know, community members who knew some of the history. They put together these little documentaries. Another kid said, why don't we put signs on each building? Another kid said, let's put the documentaries on a website. Another one said, let's do QR codes. These are eighth grade kids. So before you know it, they do this public exhibition in downtown Fargo, invite the mayor, town council, parents, citizens, they all come in. They explain what they did. They've got these signs on all the buildings with QR codes. Anybody who goes by can put their phone on it, immediately access a minute or two long documentary done by students. I mean, you know, like these kids love history. History has come to life for them. They are learning how to think like an historian. They're making a positive contribution back to their community. And they are on fire. And those teachers feel trusted to create learning experiences and get their kids excited. And so to me, the question is, why don't I see those everywhere in a lot of you know classrooms instead of occasionally in some? Because I think anybody listening to me would say, oh my God, I wish my kid were doing that. Yep. That sounds so cool. I mean, my kid got to think about ways, you know, and it doesn't have to be buildings, right? It could be elderly in your community that have made a difference. It could be uh, your ancestors. It could, you know, it could be a million things that are steeped in history 
that kids find and, that, and bring real curiosity to. And then it's capture that history, bring it to life, and share it with others. And it was like, oh my God, why is that was it? And you know, but back to your question before, why doesn't that define education in America today? It doesn't define it because the kids in Fargo were doing something on the buildings in Fargo and the kids in Richmond might have their own take and interpretation of the statues on Monument Avenue. And the kids in Tulsa, Oklahoma City might do something on that terrible bombing that killed so many people there. And, and they're not doing the exact same thing. And since they're not doing the exact same thing, these bureaucrats and these testing organizations and these college admissions officers can't conveniently rank it. And I say, time for you to spend just a few more minutes and actually look at the work that's produced to make your own evaluation of whether it's high quality, medium quality, or low quality, instead of telling everybody they've got to do boring stuff that they find irrelevant, and for good reason, because it is, just so you can look at a data chart and have graphs. It's a really bad reason to ruin the lives of so many K-12 through kids. Again, well said. And, you know, I think some of the, you know, taking some of that energy and trying to get some things going here uh, in the state, you know, you were recently in the metro area to launch the, uh, or help launch the Virginia's for Learners Innovation Network. So I'm just, that is really exciting for me just to hear about and know that it's it's underway. But for those that aren't familiar, would you talk a little bit about what the network is hoping to achieve and why? Well, the excitement those two days in Richmond was just off the charts. And, you know, the model, and this is something I deeply believe in. You know, I wrote, I went to all 50 states. I wrote this book. I've been doing a lot in a couple states kind of getting a sense of what what is a good, you know, the question that's consumed me for the last four years, five years has been, how do you help an existing school change? You know, we talked before, central planning from the Soviet Union, you know, whoop, here's the new thing everybody has to do, you know, generally driven by some academic PhD committee, you know, that that is really disconnected from the real world, that just sort of does think every high school kid's got to be passionate about Chaucer, not to pick on Chaucer. I was an English major, William and Mary, so, <laughs> you know, like, like I read Chaucer. Chaucer, even for me, was hard, you know, but to think that kids everywhere across America are going to spring into life and love reading by, by forcing them to read Chaucer just seems beyond silly. Um, but anyway, you know, what I saw was the teachers, there's a ton of pent-up innovation in our teachers in America. There are a lot of innovative principals and superintendents. They are just waiting to kind of be let loose. And then kids, I mean, the kids, you know, creativity, you know, audacity, passion for making positive contributions. It is really a powerful force. Seen, by the way, a lot of the curiosity and creativity, you see a lot of that in elementary schools, and you see a lot less of it in high schools, which is, you know, a tragedy in the making for us. But anyway, I've been working with a team of people. I, you know, in my book, I wrote about Pam Moran um, in Central Virginia. She is just amazing. You know, you've got James Lane, Atif Carney. I mean, you've got some great leaders in the state that are just saying, we can imagine a new vision for education in Virginia. And what we did, and this is really core to this change model. It, 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 you know, and I say this over and over again. The best thing we can do in our schools with our our teaching staff is kind of take an attitude of encourage and let the sprinters sprint, let the runners run, let the joggers jog, let the walkers walk. And if somebody just is bound and determined not to change, 
many of them might actually be doing a really good job with a very traditional classroom. But when you when you let people do what they want to do, instead of, instead of tell people what they have to do, there's a world of difference. And so we sort of are carrying that model forward in many ways. And so it started by saying to all the districts in Virginia, we've got this bold you know, initiative that we're going to carry forward in the next two years to demonstrate how lots of schools in Virginia can can affect great positive informed change, can effectively transform themselves. Which districts are interested? It's not every district has to. Which ones want to? We said we could support 20. We got like, I think it was 56 applications. Some were teams of districts. We ended up upping it, so we're supporting 26. And then when I was there, I said, the worst thing you can do is to go back and say every district, every school in our district has to. And the worst thing a school that wants to could could do is to say every teacher has to. And then, you know, because it's so much more powerful if a principal says, I'm looking for a few teachers this month to try this interesting practice. And we've got this resource. Any of your listeners could just put in www.innovationplaylist.org. Or if you just go to my website, just tedtintersmith.com, there's a nap bar for innovation playlist. These are a bunch of, I call it small steps that lead to big change. What are some really safe, simple things you can try that might require 20 minutes, maybe a classroom period, that a teacher really excited about doing something different can, for instance, say, you know, it kind of goes like this. You know, principal would say, do I have any teachers in the school that would love to try one 20-minute block of curiosity time this coming school month. So that's 20 minutes out of, you know, 20, 21, 22 class periods, or in elementary school, 22 days. And, and, and then we've got these great resources that say, here's what it looks like, here's how to think about it. You know, we make some suggestions. We don't say you have to do it this way, but here's how a master practitioner has done it. You may find some of this helpful. But the, the whole idea is, there will be teachers, I promise, any school in Virginia. If so, if a principal said that, three, four, five to 10 to 15 to 20 will hold up their hand and say, I'm in, I'll try that. And then you just say, come back next month. How did it go? Maybe bring some students back. What did they think? And, and then others, the others that said that, I, I, I don't know if I want to do it, but I'm curious to what other people's experience is. When people come back and say, oh my gosh, these kids had such amazing questions. Oh my gosh. Kids that never spoke in class actually came up with these stunning questions. Oh, my gosh, you know, letting them have some time on their own and then work in small teams to sort of distill down, refine, kind of consolidate questions. That was really powerful. A whole bunch of things. Then the next month, you say, anybody else want to try it? Meanwhile, the ones that have taken that first step, you might say, following the playlist suggestions, anybody up for one Socratic seminar this month? You know, 45 minutes out of 21 class periods. What do the kids discuss or debate in a Socratic seminar where you've got all these questions from curiosity type? So we sort of lay out these with a suggested sequence of small steps with with sort of really agile, like curiosity time is like a 12-minute video. So it's super easy for a teacher to, you know, absorb that. This isn't, you know, a 400-page manual or whatever. It's not obsessing about aligning with anything. It's, it's just, here's what somebody did. Here's their suggestions. What do you think? And, and, the energy level, you know, like, oh my gosh, you know, this, this might actually work. I do a lot, you know, we're, we've got, we're probably a year into this in, in Hawaii. I mean, you go to schools all over that, that state, all across the islands, and the sense of empowerment, excitement, the sense that we're being trusted, we, the teaching, 
teaching force there. We're being trusted to lead the way. We, people are actually encouraging us to do the things we entered the profession to do, to come up with great ways to engage and inspire kids instead of having to do this on this minute of this class period with this, you know, scripted curriculum. You know, it's like night and day. And, and I just feel like that's, that's the education, that's the power, that's the passion we need to unleash. I love it, Ted. And I want to get you out of here on this last piece. You know, I try to, as, as much as possible, let my kids' voice come through. And uh, short of having one on here with me today to talk to you, I, I just I know what they would want me to ask someone like you. And so, you know, I think this is it. And they'll be sure to let me know if this was wrong. But you know, the the reality is this. You know, most kids are going to go and they're going to get a great experience here or there, and, and like you said, you know, everywhere and nowhere. But what do you say to the kid that, you know, goes on to, to ninth grade and just can't stand their high school experience? Like, what are they supposed to do about it? Are they just supposed to be quiet and, and just sit down and, and shut up like we've been telling them all along, or, or can they do something about it? Absolutely, they can do something about it. And, and, and you know, one of the things that I, I'm struck by, right, um, and I'm speaking from some personal experience, I've got a 22 and a 20 year old, is I see so many parents that just from the earliest grades wage war with their kid. You have to do the homework. If you don't do the homework, you won't get good grades. If you won't get good grades, you won't get into the right college. Often they take it from there and say, if you don't get into the right college, you're probably not gonna have a very good life. And that is a battle each and every school night, year in and year out, and some kids break from that and other kids grudgingly go along and other kids just buckle and do it. And, and, but then what happens, right, is that they have done everything right. They do play the game. They do maybe up their chances to get into a little bit better college, maybe a lot better college. But oftentimes those kids are deeply unhappy. Those parent-child relationships are broken and may never get fixed. And, and then what happens, right, is, is this, this whole success path, and I put that in the biggest of quotes, where the kids have done everything right. They get into the great college. They spend four years in college. The family spends 80K to 300K. The kid gets out. You know, those kids, I ask those kids, I ask college seniors, you know, like, tell me like three really bold and interesting career paths you could create for yourself. They look at me like I have three heads. <laughs> what do they do? Yeah. They go to the career services office. They sign up for 12 interviews and they kind of take whatever job that comes along. So maybe a kid that is incredibly interested in art or music becomes a passionless accountant. And, you know, if somebody's listening who's an enthusiastic accountant, I actually like cost accounting, so I don't mean to diss the accounting profession. But so many kids are channeled into jobs and careers they don't really want to do because it's just the next hoop to jump to. But, okay, but, and this is where it really gets interesting. Think about kids. I mean, I, you know, this, you know, people should read my book because I show all these kids that have the courage and the support of their family, but the courage and the vision to say, I'm going to use K-12 to get really good at something I enjoy. And I'm going to learn the complementary skills that put me in a position to actually move forward and have a great career with or without college. And I am sure anybody listening will say, that's not possible, Ted. I mean, this guy is just making this up. But let me just give you two examples, right? Young woman uh, in Vermont, senior year, explains to me she was going to not be able to finish high school. She couldn't do math. She hated math. And algebra was going to keep her from getting a high school degree. So you think about an artist 
with no high school degree, with no family support, you know, it's kind of game over for that kid. Except Vermont has this thing called branching out. But, you know, visionary leadership at the state level, Rebecca Holcomb put it in place. Kids can swap out stupid requirements like algebra for something different. So this young woman says to her high school, could I replace algebra with teaching myself how to design websites? So listen to that, audience. Everybody who was skeptical about what I just said, do you have a kid that can learn how to be really good at designing websites? Odds are really high you do. Do you have a kid that would enjoy creating websites? Odds are excellent you do. You know, layer on that a kid who's great at art, which is really important at a great website, you're off and running. And guess what? The, the minimum wage for somebody on Upwork, you know, the going rate for somebody on Upwork who's really good at website design is 30 bucks an hour, probably more than most college graduates make. <laughs> you know, so different kids, Albuquerque, different story, I'll make it briefer, but they were connected to the local soccer team that was run by people my age who said, we know there's this stuff out there called social media. We don't know how to use it. Do you have any high school kids that could create and implement social media campaigns for us to drive traffic to our, you know, our website to help build our fan base, to help build support among younger fans, particularly. I mean, these kids rise to that occasion. You know, can they do it? Absolutely. I mean, they're digital natives. Is it far better to have them crafting and implementing and getting feedback from social media campaigns and playing video games? Absolutely. Same thing, go to Upwork. Look at what somebody who's good at social media optimization, which, by the way, involves uh, artwork, language arts, and applied math. Somebody who's good at that, that going rate is 30, 40 bucks an hour. And it's actually interesting. Like, you know, it's fulfilling. It's like you, these kids can pick organizations they care about and help them. It could be a career. It could be a job opener, a door opener for them to get a job with an organization. They're like, can a kid in middle and high school, if you just peel back some of the college-ready bullshit we make them take and say, get really good at, you know, if you enjoy social media stuff, get really good at creating and implementing campaigns. Could they do it? Audience, could your kid do that? You absolutely could. So, you know, you start to think about it, and I just named two, but I could name 50. Kids can get really great at stuff, and if you complement that with some sense of a, how to be entrepreneurial about it, how to have an entrepreneurial career, how to market your services, back to that art kid, she's going to be able to support herself, a family, maybe spend 30 hours a week on website design, flexible time, her hours, and have the rest of her time pursuing her art passion. That doesn't sound like a bad outcome to me. That sounds like a lot better than making that kid a high school dropout, you know, and, you know, in and out of jail or homeless. And, and I just say, tell me again why we have the courses we've got when, you know, I, I, you know if, if people do Google me, I think they'll see that I know a fair amount about math. And I'm very open in saying grade 8 through 12 math is pretty much a 100% waste of kids' time except for those kids that make, it makes them feel really stupid or blocks them from getting a high school degree, in which case waste of time would be upside for those kids. And, and so I just say, like, we're, something's really wrong, right? Something, you know, like if we can articulate paths where kids out of high school have great fulfilling career paths as an option going forward, uh, and we're not doing that, then shame on us. Mm. Ted, after all of that, I'm sure you're going to get uh, Googled quite a few times. So uh, in addition to just Googling your name, uh, where can people find you and your work? Well, the best thing is just www.tedintersmith.com. 
and that's got all the stuff I do. I got films I back, books I've written, and things like that. So a lot of short videos that you can use, and that's got the playlist. I just say two final things to people listening. One, if you know, Jason's working like crazy on these podcasts, so share it, get other people to subscribe to what he's doing. It's great work. And also dive into the playlist. You, whether your school is part of the, the Virginia Innovation Learning Network or not, you know, you can make real change in your school. And the playlist gives you a lot of resources that can help you pull together the people that are committed to changing your school and gives you really great suggestions that won't put people on the defensive, that won't make people hate what's going on, that sort of support, trust, and respect the, the hard work that's being done already, but starts to move things toward a learning experience where the kids have more voice, where they're learning things that are more relevant, where their learning is connected, connected to the real world, and where they, they can't wait to get to school because they have a deep sense of purpose that their school time is directed at something that matters. Great way to end. Ted, I appreciate your time, sir. Okay, excellent. Thanks again. Thanks for all you're doing. All right, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, Jason Vest here. Look, uh, we need you to subscribe to the podcast for one reason and one reason only. Uh, and that is the same reason that you choose to listen to a podcast or not. You go to it. If it seems like it's something you're interested in, the first thing you do is you look and see what the ratings are. You look and see how many people have left positive reviews. So please, if this was of any value to you, return the favor. Thank you. Have a great day.